Do you know God's will for your life? Some of you can confidently answer that. Some of you are wondering, what did he just ask? <laughs> think, think about what you'd understand of God's will for your life. A lot of people want to know God's will for life. It's actually a very popular message. Right? Where should you go to school? What career should you choose? What spouse should you choose? Who should you marry? Most of you, that's determined already. But there are some younger ones where it's not. What does the rest of your future look like? How do you know God's will? Right? Well, John MacArthur has a very good series on that called uh, God's, Found God's Will. So you can listen to it as a sermon or look at it. It's a little book, right? but it's very, very helpful. My point is not to get into those things today. But to, to highlight a particular irony. That in one hand, we hunt to, you know, for the will of God. We want to know the answers to all those questions. And we're diligent to like, what is this? And for those who are believers, you, you pray about it. And there's some who are, think they're believers or not. And they're not sure what to do. And they're looking for some kind of feeling within themselves to determine which direction they should go. But we hunt. We're looking for it. We're paying attention to it. And yet sometimes, amongst all that, we totally neglect the explicit word of God right here. Isn't that kind of ironic? God's given us something black and white. You don't have to hunt for it. God hasn't play, isn't playing hide and seek with his will. I mean, he's given it to us. And yet sometimes we just ignore it and go looking for his will in other areas. Right? That maybe aren't so clear. Well, when it comes to Matthew 18, it's one of those passages of Scripture that declares to us what the will of God is that we ironically ignore or disregard. And I say we, I'm using it in a collective sense, and that may not apply to you personally. But generally, Christians and churches do not follow through with the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18, even while they're seeking his will, you know, like for a building or, you know, for hiring a new a pastor or an assistant pastor, a new position, or what ministries to start, yet they completely overlook the explicit word of God. We don't want to do that. And it's absolutely necessary that we not do that if we're going to pursue reconciliation the way that God intends us to do that. So let's read together Matthew 18, and I'll read verses 15 through 17. Today we're going to be looking explicitly at verse 17, but again, weaving uh, the rest of it in together. Let's read together, Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we have kind of systematically worked our way through Matthew 18. The first thing you have to realize is that you have a, a duty and responsibility to go. Right? It's, it's really just something mental. Right? I highlight that because so many Christians today, so many churches today just, just don't realize that. So before you actually go, you have to realize that you have a duty and responsibility to go. 
And you go not only out of duty, but you do it out of your love for Christ, your love for the other person, your love for your church. Those are your motives. So you have to understand that God has given us, each one of us, a duty, a responsibility, a privilege to carry out on behalf of Christ in pursuing reconciliation. The first real step or physical step is when you see your brother sin is that as you go. Pursuing reconciliation starts with you going to your brother or sister. And, and we've looked at these things. The first step of corrective discipline is that you go. That you are... You become aware of your brother's sin and it's something that you can't let love cover or it's not appropriate to let love cover. And so you go, right? And you go show him his fault. And maybe you have to ask questions. You don't have all the details. We've looked at all that. Just giving you a, a summary. So you go and if your brother listens to you, then you've won him. You drop the issue there. Nothing further is discussed. You don't talk about it with anybody else. You praise God for his work in that person's life and, and you pray for that person and, and keep in mind, it's not just forgiveness that we're working towards, it's reconciliation. So reconciliation includes forgiveness, but it's more than just forgiveness. Right? So you're going to reconcile that relationship. And it might be a sin against you, but it might be a sin that you're witness to. It doesn't have to be against you. It's something in the providence of God. He's put you there to observe what's going on in that person's life. And that, that you going to them is one of those good works that God has prepared ahead of time by his providence that you go walk in that, right? We don't, often, we, we don't often think about discipline as a good work, but it, but it is one of those good works that he has providentially prepared when, when you're in that kind of circumstance. So he's given you the opportunity to cooperate with him in that work that he's doing in a person's life. But what happens if the person doesn't listen? Well, that's where we see that in Matthew 16, 18, 16, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And, and there, Jesus is referring to the law of Moses, which, which required witnesses, right? So that people couldn't be charged with things and then held liable for things they didn't do. There had to be witnesses, sometimes to the act. But in this case, these aren't witnesses to the act, because like the first step assumes that it's just you that see the sin. So you are going to your brother if a lot of people see the sin, it's no longer private. So it's no longer needed just for you to go to that person privately. Right? The first step is just you and you alone. You go to that person. But the second step is, if he doesn't listen, you move to the second step and you take witnesses along. And these are witnesses of how the person responds. And really they're called witnesses because they may become witnesses if the process goes to step three. So they're actually counselors. You want to recruit the best counselors, people that might have an influence on the person you're trying to reach, people who are mature and know the scriptures, who are patient and, and kind. So you want to recruit those to help you counsel, help you reconcile, help you win that person to Christ. And uh, last week I gave you kind of an extended illustration and we will continue that with, uh, with Carl and Jim. Carl had... Uh, contracted with Jim to put a foundation in for his house and put in the framing for his house. And when Jim finished the work, he sent the bill to Carl and Carl's business hit some financial difficulties and Carl refused to pay. You know, he didn't, it's not like he worked out some kind of payment plan or negotiated anything. He just simply cut off the relationship and said he wasn't going to pay and, and demanded that Jim just suck up the loss in his business, which Jim could not do because he had employees to pay. So it wasn't something that Jim could just, you know, let love cover that uh, in Carl's case. So that was a situation. And 
So when um, Jim um, went to Carl, that as I mentioned last week, that meeting didn't didn't go well. Carl uh, did not listen, and um, so Jim recruited helpers, right? one elder and another businessman within the church, and they went to Carl and listened to Carl and had uh, a discussion about these things and they agreed with Jim that Carl had sinned against him. And and in that process, Carl got upset and again uh, responded angrily and did not listen. And when the men were leaving, Carl threatened to hire a lawyer and to sue them, sue Jim and to sue the church if they took this matter any further. And kind of where we left it last week was asking the question, what what would they what should they do what would what would you do well if we want to honor the lord right we have to move this forward even in the face of legal threats so you cannot let people's threats of violence or of legal action stop you from doing what needs to be done because the lord commands us he doesn't give us conditions verse 17 says if he refuses to listen to them Tell it to the church. So pursuing reconciliation requires you, uh, if once you get past step two and they won't listen, it requires you to get help. It requires you to take the matter to the church and specifically to the church elders if the person refuses to listen to you and to the witnesses. So again, just a reminder, when, when should you take the matter to, to the church elders? The timing is just a wisdom issue. Scripture doesn't tell us. If the, seri- if the situation is extremely serious, uh, then it's, the timing is much shorter. If it's something that you can be patient upon, then it's better to be patient. Wait as long as you can. But, but in essence, when it's when that person absolutely refuses to listen. Right? Which you can expect when you initially, when you first go, probably nine times out of ten, they're not going to listen. So it's not necessarily in that first visit. Right? You go, you present... And the witnesses come and present, right? and unless, unless there's lives at risk or something very dangerous, then you, you give it as much time as you, you can give it. But at, at some point, if that person refuses to listen, you must move this forward to the church. What does it mean to tell to the church? Does this mean that at the end of service, uh, you just stand up and you announce a person's name and you announce the two witnesses and you levy charges against the person. Um, no, especially not in our culture. And I, I, keep in mind, Jesus doesn't doesn't specify this, but I want to argue this is something that the church elders should do. Now, you, can you imagine a church where something like that is going on? Right. So at the end of service, somebody stands up legitimately and they've worked through this biblically and now they're telling the church and they have their witnesses there. And all sounds, everybody sounds, you know, that that sounds good. What he says, it sounds like he's done everything he, he could do. But all of a sudden that person stands up at the end of the service and starts to give another side of the story. And he also has two witnesses to corroborate his side of the story. Now wars the church. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue? Right? So that's exactly why we don't do those kind of things. Why it's not wise to do those things. And, and I would add this. That 1 Corinthians 14, 40 tells us that God is a God of order. He's, he's not a God of confusion. Right? So things when we, the church gathers should be done orderly. That looks differently in different cultures. But generally in that culture, the worship service and our meetings should be done orderly. 
to honor our Lord and our God. And then additionally, each church is to be led by a plurality of elders. And, and those elders have been given the responsibility and authority to lead the church in situations like this. So it's their responsibility. And they have the authority of leading in, in matters of church discipline. Let's back up and just say, what is the purpose of taking something to the church elders? When you reach the stage of telling the church, what's the purpose? What is the purpose? The main goal of corrective church discipline is always restoration. Right? So at every step, your goal is to win your brother or your sister. Right? To win them back. To, to, to help them turn away from sin. Or to help turn them away from false doctrine. Yes, we would discipline under some circumstances for false doctrine. It just depends on what it is. Right? But your goal is to win them. Not to ostracize them. That's the ultimate kind of step if they continue to, to listen. But that's not our goal. Our goal must be to, to win them. Now, when someone refuses to listen and the matter is reaching the stage of the, the general church knowing about it, then the church must take action. Um, when that matter becomes known, when that sin becomes known to the church, the church elders must take action. They, they must deal with the sin because un, undealt sin works like yeast in a loaf of bread. And that's a positive thing for me because I like bread. But scripture points it as a negative thing, just its, its influence within that piece of bread. But think of it like gangrene is another image, right? Gangrene, once it starts, something doctors can't stop, right? What they do is they have to cut off that section of infection so it doesn't spread. If they don't do that, it's going to spread and you're going to die. Right? So that's how we need to see sin. Is it's, it's that pervasive that it must be dealt with. Right? And the fact that churches aren't doing this today right, explains why they're so in such, such a mess today, doctrinally and in, practical, in their practical lives. Right? So there's gangrene deep within the bones of the church today. And it's spreading because it's not dealt with with the Lord's help. So th the purpose is to win the person. The purpose is to protect the church and to keep that sin from spreading. So if we're not to like stand up at the end of a meeting and, you know, call out the person's name, how are you supposed to tell the church? Well, you tell the church by going to an elder. Now, in our, our situation, one of the elders is already involved. But still, the lead person should initiate should make sure that the elders know about this. You just, you just discreetly go to one of the elders and say, you're dealing with a situation that may result in a step three church discipline and you need their help. And you set up a meeting with them, right? And you, you talk about it. And, and the elder may want to talk to you privately. The elder may want to talk to you and the other two witnesses uh, and gather as much information as he can. Uh, at that point, the elders are going to initiate a, a thorough investigation of their own. They may go reinitiate one elder going to the person and then two elders going to the person just to confirm that the person is truly unrepentant. Don't be offended by that. They're just doing their homework. They want to hear the other side. Scripture says, you know, that when you hear one side of the story, it seems right until you hear the other side. So they, they want to hear both and they want to see the person's reaction for themselves and they, they must do that in order for this whole process to glorify the Lord and then how much time 
is taken and all that is really dependent on the particular situation and the person and, and the dangers there. So the elders can take as much time as they need to make sure that their brother is, is um, clearly in sin and that he is rejecting any kind of overtures for help, that he has reached the stage of, of not listening to instruction. And I, want to, I just want to remind us a little bit, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want to remind us that if you find yourself in a situation like this, sometimes you can have a strong conviction that's not necessarily found in the word of God. And you have a personal preference that's not, you can't go to chapter and verse and say, I found it there. So you might find yourself in a situation where an elder is coming in and he is, he is providing instructions a little differently than what you would like to see. And, and the church has given important instruction in, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And I just want to, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important as we talk about reconciliation. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. So godly, Christ-honoring elders, those who are biblically qualified to lead, are not going to lord it over you. They're not going to. They're not going to be issuing like uh, kind of silly instructions. They're going to lead in such a way where they're an example to the flock. That's what First Peter five three tells them to do. They're not to lord it over. They're to lord their authority over you. Uh, they're called to exercise oversight for the glory of God. They are under shepherds. Jesus is the good chief shepherd. They're under shepherds under Him. Uh, shepherding the local flock of God. And that scripture says that they keep watch over your souls. We live in a very independent society and everybody tends to think, I can take care of myself. But God knows better. You need shepherds who are watching over your souls. And elders are called to do that. So if you find yourself in some situation, you're in some conflict with somebody and you think that person wronged you and that person thinks that you wronged them and the elders step in and, and they give you instruction you need to, to let go of what's the unclear. The unclear in the situation might be who is, who is offended who. Maybe you're both a little bit in the wrong. Right? That's actually what happens in reality. Right? Is both sides are a little bit in the wrong. Not 50-50, but both are in the wrong usually. Right? So if the elders step in and give you instruction, the clear thing to do is to listen to their instruction. Even though your heart, your emotions, and everything else is saying, fight for my rights or... You know, this has to be worked out. The, the clear thing to do is to follow the instructions of the elders, right? And they, they will give instructions. They won't be capricious. The elders are going to give instructions based on the word of God. Right? That honors the Lord, right? So never give up uh, or abandon a clear principle for something that's unclear, right? And that's hard to do in, the, in kind of the fog of war or the fog of a conflict, right? But I just point that out to say the Lord provides protection for you through that, through your elders. If you are listening to them, right, the Lord will, will honor that, right? And good things will come out of that, right? Don't, don't give up the unclear or don't give up the clear for the, for the unclear. So back, back to the explanation of what the elders' actions are to do. So once the elders uh, conduct kind of their own investigation, reach the stage where they're convinced that the person is in sin and has reached the stage of not listening, right? Then they will move the process forward. So they've thoroughly investigated it. They found corroborating evidence that the erring person has sinned or continuing to sin. 
and they're convinced that the person has been properly confronted and they're convinced the person has refused to listen. Those, those are needed. When, when that moves forward, then, then they will tell the church. Now keep in mind that there are some situations where steps one and two aren't really evolved. So you go immediately to step three. Step three is involved in a case where the sin is already known. It's already known and it's an embarrassment to the church. It's an embarrassment to the name of Christ. Um, maybe it'll happen where the disciplined party has, has taught or disseminated some kind of false doctrine and they've been confronted um, and that they've chosen to disregard the elders' instructions. And it could also occur where the disciplined party has been warned twice to, to cease from factious and divisive conduct and has chosen to continue. So issues involving uh, church you know, where the church could be uh, led into division must be dealt with much, much quicker. So situations could go directly to step three. Although most of the time, generally, you're going to have to go through steps one and two uh, to to reach your brother or sister. So when the elders bring the church to the matter, how will they do that? Well, there's not specific instructions given about this in scripture. At our church, we would do it at a... Um, a regular scheduled meeting at the end of it. If, if timing allowed, I would prefer to do it on a communion Sunday, which calls us to really uh, examine our hearts together as a church. So uh, all things told, that's when we would do that. We would communicate the type of sin. The per- we would read the person's name and the type of sin. No details. I don't want to say anything that elicits you to think about things you should not think about. Right? And I don't want to tell you more than you need to know because if the person repents, you don't need to know those things. So what is the church to do and, and how are you to respond if we ever get to that stage? Or I should say, when we get to that stage, it's really um, likely to be when and not if. Um, so the church is told about your brother's sin to help rescue your brother. This, this, this is an all-out rescue attempt. This is all-hands-on-deck type of thing where you're told enough so that you are able to contact that person uh, in various ways, depending on your relationship with that person, to call them to repentance, to plead with them to repent, to plead with them to listen. The person, obviously, since he's in the church, would claim to be a believer. Right? So you approach him as a brother in Christ. His actions are actually casting doubt upon his profession of faith. So you, know, you plead with him from that. You say, brother, Show yourself to be a true follower of Christ and listen to instruction. Listen to the elders. Repent of your sin and work this out. This all hands on deck type of approach is God's way of applying social pressure. So the the cancel culture today stole one of God's methods. And and that is to apply social pressure. Not just to change your outward actions but to help you see the seriousness of the path that you're on to, to turn you away, to turn your brother away from, from the devastating path that they're on. Right? So if they're, if they're a believer in Christ and they continue in sin, the Lord is going to discipline them himself. And you see some of the ways that he does that right? in 1 Corinthians 11. Sometimes he just kills them. Right? That's listed in there as well. Sometimes he brings sickness 
in there as well. So you can be sure from Hebrews 12 that if you are a child of God and you continue in sin, you will be disciplined. Better you receive the discipline of your brothers and sisters who love you here than you continue and God have to go to more drastic measures to discipline you. It could be that the person professes to be a believer but isn't really a believer. So in that case, we go to win them, right? So, and we don't know that. We can't examine the heart. We approach them like a believer. Their actions are showing themselves to be an unbeliever, but we're going and appeal to them and walk in the truth. So how, what you're supposed to do at this part is just persistently call the person. Call them to repentance. Be kind to them. Don't slander. Don't slander and gossip. That's the big temptation. Like when you're told someone's name and what they've done, that you get in groups, you talk to your friend, and you say, oh, I can't believe what they did. No, believe it, because you would do the same thing if it weren't for the grace of God. You know, we're, we're all not that different at heart, right? So we're not better. So reach out to them. If you know them well, reach out to them. Ask them to lunch. And during the lunch, Plead with him. You have to be intentional with this. Don't just talk about the weather, how the work's going, or anything like that. Be very intentional with calling the person to repentance. With, you know, come prepared, bring a Bible. Come, if he lets you, open up the scriptures. Right? Do all that you can do. Oftentimes the person bolts. The person won't want to be around. So you've got to pursue them. Right? You know, pursue them like that lost sheep. In Matthew 18, Jesus used that analogy before he gets to this church discipline. Right? We're pursuing that sheep that has gone astray. Right? And all together, we want to do that. And the more people that are involved, the more effective that this becomes, which is why you can't just sit back and say, well, I don't really know that person all that well. Seems kind of strange for me to be doing this. I know it feels strange, but you're part of the body of Christ in a local church. You have a responsibility as a local church to, to help out, even if you don't know the person that well. So collectively, you want to try and, and reach them. The idea here is for the person to, um, to repent. And if the person repents, then we forgive very quickly, just as quickly as the Lord forgave us. And remember that forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. You may not be able to forget. Right? You can make a case that God never forgets because he knows all things. Right? So the issue isn't forgetting, it's what you do with the information. Forgiving means not bringing it up again to them. It means not treating them different because of whatever they did. Right? So that's what we're working towards and greater to restoring the relationship. So forgiveness is the, the foundation of that reconciliation or restoration of relationship. So back to the story. I've got to ask, are you going to finish the story this time? Yes, I hope to. Right. So, we, so when we saw Carl and Jim at, at the end of, of step two, Carl um, refused to listen and he threatened to hire a lawyer. He became aggressive um, and he wanted to sue for slander and emotional damages. But Jim and, and the other two witnesses, one of whom was an elder, understood that they had to obey God rather than man. So Jim and the two witnesses took the matter to the elders and they investigated things. They uh, went and, and so, tried to meet with Carl. One of the elders called Carl to set up a meeting to hear his side of the story. But, but Carl told the elder that the problem was with Jim. He should be talking to Jim, not with him, and he refused to meet. Um, the elder warned Carl that his unwillingness to meet with the elders would mean uh, that this 
situation would be brought before the church at a regularly scheduled meeting. And the elder pleaded with Carl to listen and to turn from his sin. Carl just got abusive, verbally abusive, and he he threatened to have his family and his friends there to defend him. Still yet, one other elder, a a Bible study leader of the men's group that that Carl participates in, called Carl to try to, to plead with him as another voice yet to reach him. But Carl responded angrily to him as well. Despite Carl's threat to sue, the elders decided that they must tell the church. They made plans to bring the matter before the church at an next regularly scheduled worship service. At the end of the service, they read appropriate scriptures like Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, and other portions of scripture that address proper Christ-like attitudes and behaviors. They reminded the church that as a holy people, they are to live holy. Remember what um, you know, First Peter says, uh, it's really, it's God saying that you are Holy, you are to be holy for I am holy. God is holy. We are to live as a holy people. So we have that responsibility. And so they brought this to the congregation. The congregation was told of Carl's non-payment to to Jim and of the repeated uh, refusal to listen, to repent, and to work things out. Not only refusal to listen to Jim, but to the witnesses, to the elders as well. Uh, the congregation is told to contact Carl and appeal to him to listen. So in the, in the following weeks, the congregation does just that. Carl received many phone calls and letters asking him to reconsider, to change his stubborn behavior. Friends took him to lunch and pleaded with him. But each time, Carl just got defensive. And he accused the church of ruining his life and all his church friendships. He hired a lawyer. He made good on his threat and he hired a lawyer to sue Jim and the church for slander and harassment. So what should the elders do at this point? Well, we see that in verse 17. The elders aren't going to flinch. They're not going to relent. They're going to move forward because they want to honor God. They fear God more than they fear Carl's threats. And so they've got to to move to that fourth step. See at, at the second half of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So let's just try to understand what Jesus is saying here. If your brother refuses to listen, listen to you, listen to the witnesses, listen to the elders, he is to be put out of the church. And Jesus uh, uses a, a figurative language of let him be to you as a Gentile, as a tax collector. Now let's remember that Jesus was speaking here to his Jewish disciples. To the Jew, a Gentile is outside the covenant family. Um, He was someone who was ostracized. He was outside the covenant that God made with Israel. And in the Old Testament, Gentiles could worship the one true God and be included in the covenant community, but only really be by becoming Jewish themselves. Not, Not bloodline Jewish, but in culture Jewish. Worshiping the one true God and taking on all the all the Mosaic law and all the customs that the Jews were following. Remember that that Jesus, at the time he was speaking this, hadn't yet torn down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews were part of the covenant community. The Gentiles were not, by and large. There are Jews, I mean, there were Gentiles in the lineage and the redeemed family in the Old Testament. But by and large, the Gentiles were excluded. Ephesians 2.14 talks about how Christ tore down the wall between Jew and Gentile. 
So Jesus is using that, that analogy, that, that fact that there's this great separation between the Gentiles and the Jews to say, let that person, even though he's Jewish, because he would have been at this stage, right? And, and within the covenant community, let that Jew be to you like a Gentile. There is a wall of separation between you now. And he uses another uh, figure for someone who's ostracized, and that is in the, the tax collector. Right? The tax collector was somebody that people obviously didn't like right? because he's coming to take their money. Right? But there's a little cultural element thrown into this. A lot of tax collectors were Jews who had turned on their Jewish friends and then um, were working with Rome to collect funds. And they just didn't collect what Rome required, keep in mind. They collected more. And generally, they could keep everything that they collected. So... You know, they would use some Roman soldiers and help. And, you know, just that all that extra would be in their pocket, which is why most of the tax collectors in Scripture are very wealthy people. So they're feeding Rome, but they're also feeding their own pockets. So, again, someone who is not within the covenant community, even though they might be Jewish, they're separated. Right. So Jesus is using these two types of ostracized people to say, you've got to take a person if he continues to sin and he refuses to listen. Even after you've told the church, you've got to take that person and remove him from the church. That, that in other words, you treat him as an unbeliever. He is now outside the redeemed of the family. You don't know actually where his heart is at. He could be at this stage a, a believer who is hardened in sin. right? But it, it could be that the person is a professing believer who is not really converted. So the point Jesus is making is the person who refuses to repent and listen should be treated as someone who is outside the covenant community of God's redeemed people. So for us today, this means treating them as an unbeliever and putting them out of the church. Right? Now this doesn't mean, because there have been so many abuses of the scripture, this doesn't mean treating them unkindly. You know, like the Pharisees and Sadducees would treat, or think of the Gentiles like dogs, and you know, they were just, there's a lot of animosity. That's not what Jesus is saying. Don't, you're, we're not to do that. We're to even pray for enemies, love our enemies, Jesus said. So, but, but think about this. We are to um, treat them as an unbeliever that's walking in a very dangerous path and they need rescuing. So you don't have to cut off all contact with the person when it reaches this stage. But you do need to have redemptive contact. You can't just go have lunch with a person. You can't just go play around a golf with the person, right? If you go play around a golf at every hole, every time, every opportunity, you are calling that person to repentance. Likely, the person will not finish the round of golf with you if you do that. But that's okay. You've done you've done your job, right? That person is to be cut off from the fellowship and the benefits within the body of Christ, right? At at that stage. And that's led, again, by the leadership of the church. It's not an individual responsibility. There is one person in Scripture who tried to do this himself, and you find him in Third John. His name is Diotrephes, and he's not spoken of very well. So again, this is a, a church-led process, a process led by the church elders. So when we reach that stage, the church is told, your responsibility, again, is to evangelize him, but he's, he's cut off from the community. If he wanted to come on a Sunday service, right, he could come to a Sunday service and listen as long as he wasn't disruptive. But he's to be treated as an unbeliever. If you saw him, you were to call him to repentance. 
when people reach stage four, they likely don't want to be here. Uh, but as another, another unbeliever, he could be as long as he wasn't disruptive. And if he was disruptive, then he would not be allowed uh, to be here. And this is something that, that, Matt, that Jesus talks about or the scriptures talk about only one time. I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 5. And if you would turn in your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians 5. And I'm actually going to read the whole chapter because it's really applicable to this type of situation. It helps you see the, the gravity and the responsibility of the uh, gravity of the situation and the responsibility the church has to carry out church discipline. So in this chapter, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth for not doing church discipline. You see, that's not uh, just a, a, a modern problem. There's a problem within the biblical church as well. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, that is his stepmother. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him, who has, who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or sw and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked, wicked man from among yourselves. So he's emphasizing the church has the authority and responsibility to remove someone in such a position. Right? This is a situation the church hasn't dealt with. Nobody has exercised step one. Nobody has exercised step two. Or step three, it's widely known within the church. And Paul's taking it uh, really even to the step four. Put him out. Right? Put him out. The person is prideful about his sin. He's unrepentant about his sin. He's... He's, in other words, there's no shame in this. The guy is boasting uh, about this. Right? Paul says, put him out. Right? That's how serious it is. You notice the, how, the language he describes. And that's, when that fourth stage hits, and you're putting them out of the church. Paul describes it as turning his flesh over to Satan. And he calls the person a so-called brother. Because at this stage, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Is that person really a brother or not? He says a so-called brother. And he's turned him over to the flesh. If he is a real genuine believer, then, then that turning him over to Satan, right? Well, God will use that to, to waken the person to his sin and draw them back into the church and seek repentance and, and to listen. Right? Uh, Ephesians 5.3, just to emphasize how much God speaks about this. Uh, there Paul says, let sexual immorality or impurity or greed 
must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So you've got to deal with it. It can't be something that's, that's, that's festering and growing within our church that's char- that our church is characterized by. In Romans sixteen seventeen, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Right? Those are the ones that refuse to listen. You turn away from them. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner and not according to the tradition which they received from us. So someone who is unruly, who refuses to listen, you turn them away. You have nothing to do with them. Uh, Paul continues in verse, verses 14 and 15 of Second Thessalonians 3. He says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be, so that he will be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Right? So you're looking at him as a brother because right, that's what he claims to be. But he's pursuing sin. He's unrepentant, not listening. And so he's put out of the church right, to shame him. And God wants that shame, right, to bring him to repentance. That's God's design. In Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, we're told to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So when someone doesn't listen to the instruction of the elders, they are self-condemned, right, because of that. So what do we do with, with Carl and Jim, right? So despite the collective efforts of the church, Carl still refused to listen. And the elders moved forward with step four, that is putting Carl out of the church. At the end of the worship service, the elders again read Matthew 18 and uh, reiterate that Carl has not listened and it continues in sin. They issue a mandate, um, really for the church to treat him as one who is now outside the the covenant community. Uh, The church is to treat Carl as an outcast, having no social interaction with him except to evangelize him. And that week, Carl received a letter and a visit from the elders telling him that he had been disfellowshipped from the church, but that he would be welcomed back if he would repent. They would welcome him back with open arms and a joyful spirit if he would just repent. Now, much of this comes from Strzok's book, which is very helpful. And I just, I just want to press this into our lives just a little bit here by quoting him. He says this, and I quote, Some Christians today may think that expulsion from a church is cruel and unloving, but such an attitude reflects the spirit of our age, not God's thinking. The fact is, every responsible sector of society, law enforcement, the military, legal and medical societies, the political and corporate worlds, has a code of discipline to protect itself from unlawful behavior among its members, and to protect its integrity. Sin must always be dealt with, otherwise it will spread like leaven and corrupt everything it touches, unquote. So if you're a lawyer, but you're acting unethically, you will be disbarred. If you're a police officer and you don't uphold the law, like we have recently seen with these five police officers beating someone to death, you will be disfellowshipped from the police force, which they have been. That happens even in the world. It should happen in the church. Yes, we are to proclaim the love of Christ, but we're with one love hold the love of Christ, the other hold we hold truth, grace and truth together, right? And not even separate, together in Christ, because Christ perfectly brought these together. 
So why it seems unloving by the spirit of the age, it is the most loving thing we can do for the person, right? To try to reach them because they are so hard. So what happened to Carl? The lawyer that Carl hired realized that Carl didn't have any evidence of all of his claims and dropped the case. It doesn't happen very often like that, but right? a good lawyer will realize they don't have a case and drop it. And that made Carl even madder, even more angry. And he began telling people, whoever would listen, that the church was really a cult and they had abused him. So again, going harder. Carl insisted that Jim had sinned against him and the elders had mishandled the case. His adult children, who had supported him previously, began to see through some of this. They began to realize that they had been wrong to support their father. And they respectfully confronted him, motivated by a true love for their father and a love for Christ. They, to- they confronted him and they told him that they were wrong for defending him and they were wrong for siding with him and sinning against the church and not even being supportive of the church discipline. So they were rebellious against the church elders. They decided to ask the church for forgiveness and they were going to go back and, and restore that relationship and reconcile with them and the church. Carl was shocked by the words, but they had a profound effect on him. Months passed. The Holy Spirit worked on Carl. Nothing seemed much to happen, but God was at work. And finally, Carl requested a meeting with the elders. They had been praying for him and responded with joy to his request. When Carl met with the elders, he reluctantly admitted that he had acted, well, inappropriately. The elders weren't satisfied with that. That just wasn't very clear. So they pressed him. They were concerned that Carl might be whitewashing his sin. At first, Carl was uncomfortable verbalizing his sin, but he realized that the elders were not going to relent and were not going to sati- you know, be satisfied with a cheap response. Then he began opening up more. And during the course of the conversation, he admitted his sins, his specific sins, and the specific people he had sinned against. The elders saw Carl become fully repentant during the meeting. And they all prayed together and embraced one another. Afterward, Carl voluntarily took care of his financial debt with Jim. He sought forgiveness from Jim. And he was welcomed. Carl was welcomed joyfully back within the church family. Carl took steps to renew the friendships, to seek their forgiveness and to express thankfulness that they loved him so much that they pursued him the way that they did. And in full repentance, Carl told everybody who would listen about the great love that that church had for him, that they rescued him despite his hard heart. Now, the outcome for Carl and Jim and this church is fantastic, right? Perfect scenario, right? And that sometimes happens. It really does. But we're not guaranteed. Often the person becomes hardened and it might take not months but years for that person to actually realize their sin and come back. The issue here is not the outcome. The issue is, for us, is obedience. We are to carry these things out. And if the person comes back, we rejoice. That's what we want. But if the person doesn't come back, we can rejoice that God was honored through our actions. And the Lord will do what he needs to do in that person's life. 
So sometimes the result will be that, like in Carl's case, that he repents and shows himself to be a genuine believer. We can rejoice in that. Other times, the person is going to continue in disobedience for as long as we know them, and maybe to the day of their death, thus proving themselves to be likely an unbeliever. And you can't see their heart, but that's what it looks like. But sometimes, someone who professes to be a believer, through that whole process, realizes that they were never really converted, that they were never born again. And so God uses that process to draw them to him. You know the great thing about God? The amount of your sin or the type of your sin can never separate you from the forgiveness of God. Right? Even if you murdered somebody. Many of us have, not physically, but some of you maybe have murdered someone physically. Right? So God forgives even that. Covers it all. To anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, he forgives them totally, instantly, and, and sends his Holy Spirit within you to make you a child of God. That's, that's the wonderful grace of our God. He died on the cross for our sins so that he could offer that kind of forgiveness, that complete forgiveness. And that's available to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord even today. That grace is available even though someone has been hardened in sin, had been disciplined, and refused to listen to the witness, refused to listen to his brothers, refused to listen to the church. And maybe that's gone on a few years. Even then, God forgives to all who call upon him. Most of us would have given up on him already. Left to ourselves, we'd be hardened and say, oh, that, that guy's never going to change. But he's no good. We don't want him in our church. That's not God's stance. And if God accepts somebody back, we better accept him back. We better forgive, just as, just as our Lord forgave. And, and someone out there may be thinking, well, does the church really have this authority? Go back to Matthew 18 just a minute. We don't have time to do a, a detailed look at this, but I want you to see how Jesus transitions from Matthew uh, verse this process of church discipline in verses 15 through 17, and what he says next. Look at verse 18. So I'm looking at Matthew 18, 18. Jesus says, truly, and he says this when he's trying to get their attention. He's truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, what is he talking about? Essentially he's saying, if, if, someone, if you declare someone to be bound in their sin through the process of church discipline, that's how God sees them. It's not saying the church has authority to, to, to dictate that circumstance. The, authority has, the church has, a, has authority to declare that that's, that's what's going on. That's the situation. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is that there's such a connection between church discipline and God's will in heaven that it's as, it's as if the church, is when the, when the church says someone is bound and puts them out, they're bound in sin and puts them out of the church, that's God's declaration as well, at least at that, at that, at that stage. And look what he says further. And he says, and again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That's not talking about prayer. Isn't that verse usually yanked out of the context of church discipline and spoke about prayer? Spoken about prayer? 
In prayer, if you're praying according to the will of God, if you're just one, God hears you and he'll act. You don't need someone else. But you need, he mentions two because of the two or three witnesses. Right? It's, the, it's, it's church discipline that's going on. So the, our Father in heaven cares so much about the purity and health of the church and cares so much about your own personal walk that it's as if he is disciplining you personally. He's using an indirect tool, and that's the church. But it's as if he is doing that. He says, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Again, not talking about prayer, but talking about church discipline, corrective discipline. It's kind of sobering. So when we enact that discipline, we need to remember that God is there. And we need to honor him through that whole process. And the person that's being disciplined needs to remember that, it, that it's ultimately it's not the elders. Ultimately, it's not the church. Ultimately, it's God bringing about that discipline for their good. Let me just end by just reminding us of what verses seventeen, verses 15 to 17 say. Let me just read it and just let this marinate in your mind. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Let's pray. Our Lord, King of heaven, head of the church, Lord God, we thank you that you are persisting God, that your love is is abounding, it's prevailing, it's relentless. It pursues us. We thank you that as a good shepherd that you pursue lost sheep. And each one of us has been a lost sheep. Lord God, just help us to remember your grace, your love. And Lord, to walk in obedience to Matthew 18. And I just pray, Lord, this morning that there are any lost sheep here. And indeed there are. Pray that you would just convict them of their sin. But even now, Lord, you would meet with them, open their eyes to see their sin, open their eyes to believe in Christ. And may they call out to you for saving faith, even today, that they, by faith, Lord, would believe in you and be saved and be made a child of God. Oh, Lord, help us as individuals and as a church to walk in obedience to Matthew 18 and to cooperate with your work of corrective church discipline. For the glory of Christ, our Savior.